1 John chapter 2. I think one of the greatest blessings that we have in the Christian life <clears throat> is that of assurance, knowing uh, that you know, knowing that you know Him. I also think that one of the greatest uh, sources of trouble among those who claim to be followers of Christ, among those who claim to be Christians, may be the lack of assurance, the lack of being certain that one is saved. Their approach to life and faith is, I hope so. I, I, I can't tell how many times I've spoken with people and they say, well, well I, I hope that I'll be right with God when I stand before him. How can one know that they know him? I like what Adrian Rogers said regarding the assurance of salvation. He says, trying to live the Christian life while lacking assurance that you are truly a Christian is like driving a car with the brakes on. You're not going to go very far, and you're not going to go very fast, and it's not going to be very much fun. I think back to my early time in ministry when I was serving as a youth pastor up in Wisconsin and Pastor Dave preached a message from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, in which he made it very clear that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring assurance that someone is a child of God. And I remember that message vividly, distinctly. And so many times I thought about how many times in student ministry I would try to bring assurance to, to teenagers where God may not be giving to them assurance because they may not be truly saved. And think about how we try to encourage people, bring assurance to people who are struggling with maybe this idea of assurance of salvation. We'll ask questions like this. Well, did you pray did you pray the prayer? No, did you pray the sinner's prayer? Well, do, do you remember signing the decision card when you were at youth camp? Do you remember walking an aisle? Well, let's check the front of your Bible. Did your, your pastor sign that page in the front of your Bible that says date of salvation? And here's the truth of the matter. When you search the scriptures, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you must pray a sinner's prayer, walk an aisle, sign a decision card, or have your pastor sign the front of your Bible in order to be saved or to give evidence of salvation. Nowhere. Instead, what do we read in the scriptures? We read exhortations like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Or in 2 Peter we read these words, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. 
No mention of a prayer, no mention of a decision card, no mention of an aisle, no mention of a pastor's signature. So how can anyone know that they know him, or in the language of today, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm saved? At the start of our Bible study series in the book of 1 John back in September, I said that one of the purposes of 1 John, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, is that we might know that we have eternal life. And in this letter, John provides three tests of salvation. I asked you at the beginning of our study, I hope you're still doing it, to regularly and continuously just read the scriptures, allow the truth of 1 John to be sinking deep into your soul. Read it regularly, read it daily. And if you've been doing that, you'll have noticed that John keeps coming back to these three tests in a variety of ways that we might know that we have eternal life. You say, what are these tests? Well, first there's the moral test, or we might call it the obedience factor. We're going to be looking at this test in particular today, and it'll come up again as we go through the book of 1 John. The moral test will just say this, is that if you are truly saved, if you know Christ is your Savior, there will be an increase of righteousness being lived out in your life. The second test is the social test, or we might call it the love factor. Lord willing, we'll see this next week as we continue on in chapter 2 of 1 John. And it too will be brought up again and again as we go through uh, this book. And then there's the doctrinal test. We might call this the belief factor. This test concerns itself with who Jesus Christ is. Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh or not? Is Jesus the Son of God or not? Is Jesus the Messiah or not? And John will argue persuasively throughout this letter in the affirmative for all three claims. Now listen, if someone comes to you claiming that Jesus and Satan are brothers, or that Jesus is a prophet of God, but not the Son of God. You need to understand that 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 is a false religion. This is a false gospel. This is not the true religion. Their message is false. To be wrong about Jesus Christ, regardless of how nice that person might be, how good you may be, if you're wrong about Jesus Christ, is to damn your eternal soul to hell. And so when we come to our text today, John will be holding up the moral test by which one might know that they have come to know God. And in our text today, John will offer two proofs by which we can know with certainty that we have come to know God, that we might have the blessed assurance of knowing Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, let's read our text for today. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 6 this morning. And then we'll 
begin to look at these two proofs that someone has come to know God. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Is it what are the proofs that someone has come to know God? What is the evidence that someone has truly been saved or has been born again? What is that proof? What is the evidence? Well, John begins in verse 3, and he repeats it again at the end of verse 5. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but he says, we know, or by this we know, that we have come to know him. End of verse 5. By this we know that we are in him. So this is how we know. That's where John begins. This speaks of knowledge. This speaks of what we know cognitively. This is what we have come to, to learn. This is what we have become convinced of. This is what we are certain of. This is what we have come to believe. It says, he's speaking in the realm of assurance. This is how you can know that you are in him. This is how you can know that you know him. The tense of that first use of know in verse 3 and again at the end of verse 5 is in the present tense. It's, this is an ongoing reality. This is something that we can live with. This is not something that we need to be vacillating back and forth about. We can be settled on this. This is a confident assurance that we can have day by day as the children of God. Say, what can we know? Well, this is what, by this we know that we have come to know Him. The use of know here is not just something that we know cognitively in our minds, but it is something that we have come to know experientially and personally. This is how you know that you have a real relationship with God. This is how you know that you have a personal relationship with God. This is how you know that you have come to know Him. And the tense here is not the present tense, but it's a perfect tense. Joel, don't you love uh, uh, grammar in church? But this is important. The, perfect, the present tense is ongoing reality. But a perfect tense is something that happened here in the past, and it has an ongoing reality into the future. So this is how you know now, day by day, moment by moment, that you have come to know him here that still has effect in your life today. All right? Let me try to illustrate this way. How do I know that I've been married to Vicky? You say, well, you live with her. I hope you're married. You wear a wedding ring. You might say, well, go back to your wedding date, July 9th, 1988. We got married in Louisville, Texas. Listen, that was the beginning of our marriage, July 9th, 1988, right? Has an ongoing effect till today. And what is it marked by? We share a life together. 
We share values together. We share common beliefs. We share common dreams and ambitions. We share children together, right? What happened back here has an ongoing effect on our life today. Well, how can we know that what happened back here is still true today? How can we know? In a similar way, John writes, he says, this is how you know that you have come to know him. And here's the first proof that he offers. The first proof is that we keep his commands. Did you see that at the end of verse 3? This is how we know that we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commands. We can say it this way. It is the desire. The first proof that we know that we've come to know him is the desire to obey God. To keep his commands. Three times we find in these verses, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, that verb keep. Verse 3, it's the proof, it's the evidence, it's the knowledge that you know that you know him. You keep his commands. Verse 4 and verse 5 is the evidence, it's, the, it's how do we verify that we're keeping God's commands. Well, the evidence is going to be given to us in verses 4 and 5. To keep, just to look upon something as a treasure. It, it has a military reference of, of guarding something. Your attitude, what John is saying here to us, the word of God is saying is this, is that our attitude towards the commandments of God should be like we are guarding a precious treasure. How do you guard something that you treasure? You're not flippant with it. You don't just discard it. You're not willy-nilly about it. You care for it greatly. You watch over it. You ensure its safety. This, John says, is the attitude of the one who is truly saved. They carefully guard, they treasure the word of God, the commands of God. John isn't asking us, hey, did you walk an aisle? Did you raise your hand at a meeting? Did you pray to prayer? Did you sign the decision card? He's not asking that, but he's saying this. He says, do you carefully guard and treasure the word of God, the commands of God? He states that this is the proof of knowing God in verse 3. And then John in verses 4 and 5 is going to test this proof. He illustrates it by holding up two people who are making the same profession. But they have different responses to the word of God and to the commands of God. Notice these two professions, or we might say professors of faith. Verse 4, we see the one who is claiming, I know God while not keeping the commands of God. This is the person who says, I know God, I, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I raised my hand, I signed the card. Uh, I'm a church member, I went through catechism class, I've been, I've been, I, 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 I take communion, I try to help people, I'm a good person. But they do not desire to keep the commands of God. They do not treasure the commands of God. They're not keeping, they're not guarding the word of God. I think we need to, let me just kind of put a caution here and then we'll try to unpack that caution a little bit. I think of the example of Jesus with the Pharisees and the scribes. They were keeping the traditions of men as though the traditions of men were the commandments of God, right? Right? Externally, man, they had everything in order. 
Religiously, they, they looked good. I mean, they showed, up for, they showed up for the services at the temple. They were making the offerings. They were reciting the prayers. Externally, they looked right. But what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter 29. What did he say? He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The care that we need to exercise here is not only the care, I got too many verbs in my sentence here. Let me try to figure my sentence out. The care that we need to exercise here is that not only is not only someone keeping is not only is someone keeping the commands of God, but why are they keeping the commands of God? So we're asking the question: Am I keeping the commands of God? Yes, I need to answer that question. But then this, the corollary question is this: Is why am I desiring to keep the commands of God? Notice what John says: The verdict is about the one who says this makes this claim. I know God, but doesn't have a desire. Or give evidence of keeping the commands of God. What does John say? This person is a what? A liar. We've already seen this word back in John chapter one, verse six. First John chapter one, verse six, right? To lie is to intentionally to, dece- to, to intentionally deceive, to lead someone astray, is to trick, to distort, distort, to present a false front. The one who is making this claim, I know God, but has no regard for the things of God. John is emphatic and says, this person's a liar. They're self-deceived. They're lying to you. And not only that, but the truth is not in them. The truth is not in them. Now think about that. There's no saving truth in them. Salvation rests on and is rooted in the truth. We can't be saved apart from the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus Christ is regarding our sin, our need for a Savior, the truth regarding of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, his death on the cross, his resurrection to life. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You were included in Christ when you heard. And the idea of hearing is not just hearing with our ears, auditory, but hearing with our lives. We've come to rest and believe when you believed the truth of the gospel. You are included in Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The one who is claiming to know God but has no desire to keep the commands of God, the scripture is saying, listen, that person's a liar in the truth. There's no saving truth in that claim. There's no evidence of sanctifying truth. John 17, 17, Jesus on the night in which he was going to be crucified in the morning, was in the garden praying. And his high priestly prayer 
sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See, when the truth is in us, there's going to be a corresponding correlation of our lives to the teaching, to the truth of God's word. We're going to be guarding, keeping, treasuring the commands in the word of God. Let me just uh, allow the scriptures to illustrate this for us. Hold your, can you hold, let's hold your place in 1 John. Let's go back a few books in the Bible to uh, Titus. So uh, we're 1 John, you got um, James, um, Hebrews, Philemon. Philemon's a one-page book, Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is writing to, giving instructions to Titus on how to establish the church on the island of Crete. He's warning them about those who claim to know God, those who've made this profession. Verse 16, chapter 1. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is what happens when we make a claim without having corresponding desire there, there's no evidence of the authenticity of that claim uh, go back um, the book right in front of Titus uh, 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 3 Peter is or Peter uh, Paul is instructing Timothy on on um, on how to pastor during difficult times and and how to lead through with difficult people in your congregation and he writes in chapter 3, he says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look what it says, verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. These are people who make a claim to know God. They have religion. They've completed the class. They've become a member. They attend a service. But they deny its power, the power of the gospel because they continue to live in an unregenerate, unsaved lifestyle and way. The Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. The prophet, uh, God said to his people Israel through the prophet Hosea. In chapter 4 verse 1 and 2. He says, hear the word of the Lord people of Israel. For the Lord has, has a cause against the inhabitants of the land. God is speaking through his prophet. He says, listen, the Lord has something against you. What is, that, what is God's accusation? What is God's charge? There is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, verse 2, cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. And we take a look at what's 
happening in, in our country today. Verse 2 is the evidence. Verse 1 is the reason we have forsaken the Lord. There's no knowledge of God in the land, and so as a result, we see this. Claiming to know God, but not keeping his commands is a lie, and the truth is not in you. So we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves the question, am I truly in Christ? What is God saying? I think we need to understand this here. If the proof of knowing God is evidenced by keeping his commands, what happens when I don't keep his commands? If I don't keep his commands, am I lost? Do I need to be saved again? What is the standard? Do I need to obey God perfectly? Is the word of God saying here in 1 John that we need to keep God's commands 100% of the time and if we don't, we can't have assurance of salvation? Is that what the scriptures are teaching? Is the best that I can have in life is, well, I, I hope I'm saved. If perfection's the standard, and John's already addressed that, If we say that we have no sin, we lie and we deceive ourselves. John said, I'm writing these things so you do not sin. If perfection's a standard, we, we end up with a bunch of hypocrites and spiritual hypochondriacs. Am I really saved? I don't know. And we just live with it. What about a percentage? Do, well, we need to come up with a percentage. Is 70% threshold of obedience, is that good enough? What about 80%? What about the times when I sin, I'm not even aware that I'm sinning? Does that count against me? If we rely on a percentage basis of obedience, we end up with a bunch of legalists who are trying to keep the external rules and self-righteous Pharisees who claim that the traditions of men are the teachings of God. So what's the answer? Verse 5. We come to the second proof of the one who claims to know God. In verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, this is the one who's claimed to know God, but he's keeping the word of God. He's keeping the word of God. Notice the difference. Whereas the first claimant said they knew God but did not keep his commands and as a result they were liars. They are, they're liars and the truth is not in them. The claimant here says, uh, I know God while keeping the word of God. Notice what John says. Love for God is truly made complete in him. The love of God is made complete or the love of God is made perfect in him. I don't think what John is saying here is this. That if you keep God's command that God's love for you is going to be perfected or completed. That's not what he's saying. But I do believe John is saying this. The Holy Spirit is saying this through the writings of John. 
or rather the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this. That love for God is made complete. That word there, to telestai. We know it in John chapter 20 when Jesus was on the cross and said it is finished. That's the word. Is made mature. Is brought to completion. Is perfected by the one who keeps his word. I like what John Stott said. True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. The proof of love is loyalty. A mature love, a complete love for God is grounded not in what you might say or how you feel, but it is in how you live. And John here is getting to the motivation of why we do what we do. A number of reasons why we do things, why we do the things we do. Uh, sometimes we do things because we have to. A slave, a servant has to do things because they have to. Does things because they have to. Sometimes we do things because we need to. A child at home obeys because he needs to. There are consequences for disobedience. We go to work on time because we need to. We need the paycheck, right? We have to show up in order to get the paycheck. We need to follow the rules in order to be paid. But neither of these reasons need to, have to, demonstrate a mature obedience. Mature obedience flows out of a love for God. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I keep God's commands because I'm afraid that God's going to, he'll whack me if I stop obeying? It's one reason why we might obey God, but it's not a deep reason why we should obey God. Why do you do what you do? Sometimes, listen, sometimes we do the right thing because we want to save face, right? We don't want to look like a buffoon in front of people, so we'll do the right thing. Sometimes we do the right thing because we want to avoid the consequences, right? We're going to do the right, we're going to obey the law because we don't want to get a ticket. Sometimes we do the right thing out of fear. Well, I better show up to church and give my offering because if I don't, well, God will break my car this week and I'll pay the mechanic and he'll give my money to God. Those are not the reason that the word of God is getting at. Why do you do what you do? Do you obey God because it flows out of a heart of love for God? Do you obey God because you're afraid of Him? Do you obey God because you want to save face? Well, I've been part of a church so long, I can't do what I really want to do. What will people think? This past week, I was with a group of men, and one of the pastors there <clears throat> told the story of of an incident that happened during the Bolshevik Revolution. The story of the soldiers going through Russia 
as the revolution was going on, and they were going to close down all the chapels, cathedrals, and churches, and so they went into this one cathedral, and there in front of the church was a crucifix, and they found a babushka, a Russian grandmother, kneeling at the feet of the, of the crucifix, with her, kissing the feet of the, of the cross, uh, of Jesus on the cross. The soldiers grabbed this babushka, and they said, would you, would you kiss the feet of our leader? She said, I would, if he died for my sins. See, verses three through six, they flow out of verses one and two. Remember who Jesus is? Two words, start with A's. Jesus is our advocate, and he's our atonement. I think I need to re-preach the message from last Sunday. A little bit disheartened. The one who represents us to the Father. We don't represent our... He doesn't represent us to the Father. Well, he's trying really hard. She's really a good person. They're just having a bad day. When we sin, he represents us to the Father on the basis of his righteousness. He's our atonement. He bore the wrath of God when he died on the cross for our sin. He took away the curse of sin. Why do we do what we do? Because Jesus is our atonement and our advocate. That's the first proof. The second proof is shorter, so we'll be good, all right? First proof, how do you know that you know him? Is there a desire to keep his commands? Number two. The second proof is the direction of your life. The direction of your life. Second half of verse five. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must also live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him. That is, whoever claims to abide in him. We, we read that passage this morning in John chapter 15 about abiding in the vine. That word of, of living in him is that word abiding in him, remaining in Christ. Whoever claims to be remaining in Christ must live, is obligated, owes his life to live as Jesus lived. Notice that the word that John uses here, whoever claims that we are in him or claims to live in him, are the is the same thing that he's been saying all throughout this passage when he said in verse 6 of chapter 1 that we light versus darkness. Chapter 2, verse 3, this is how we know him. Verse 5, that we are in him. Verse 6, now we lives in him or abides in him. All of these words, all of these descriptions are describing the same reality in the Christian life. When someone repents of their sin, believes on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we're transferred from darkness to light. We're no longer in darkness, we're now in light. When John, Jesus said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. This is, is no, salvation is knowing God. One of Paul's favorite descriptions in the epistles of Paul to describe the reality of the Christian life is to be in Christ. Jesus said on that night there in John chapter 15, 
If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The proof made by the one claiming to be in Christ will be evidenced, proved by walking as Jesus walked. This is the proof that you know him. What is the direction of your life? What is the direction of your life? Twenty-five years ago, there's that book um, written by Charles Shelton in his staffs, written, I think it was 1899, like right at the turn of the 20th century, so it was 100 years ago, 120 years ago. A, a novel in which the pastor challenged his congregation to live every day, moment by moment, asking the question, what would Jesus do, right? WWJD, you guys remember that? Hats, we got, bought the t-shirts, we wore the bracelets, you guys remember that? Unfortunate that we marketed that question, what would Jesus do? Because it became nothing to us. We wore the hats, we wore the t-shirts, we wore the bracelets, but we never really cared beyond the symbol. What would Jesus do? But that's what the scripture is challenging us here. What would Jesus do? And what difference would that make in how you live today? See, the one who claims to be in Christ is obligated to walk as Jesus walked. So what is the direction of your life? Do you know that you know him? Don't tell me about the time that you prayed a prayer. Don't take me to the camp meeting where you signed the decision card. Don't remind me of the day that you walked that aisle. Maybe I should change that. Let's not take comfort. Let us not take comfort in praying a prayer, walking an aisle, signing a card becoming a church member, completing a church class, being baptized. Let's ask ourselves the tests that the scripture offers. Jesus. What is the desire of your heart? What is the direction of your life? Do you obey Keep the commands of God because you have a love for God? Do you feel compelled in your spirit to day by day walk and do what Jesus did? That's the test 
to the legitimacy of your claim, saying, I know God. Do you know him? This is the question that you must answer. And this is the message that we must carry to the world. Colleagues, neighbors, co-workers, fellow classmates. Apart from knowing him as evidenced by desiring to obey his commands, walking as Christ walked. will not lead to a life of assurance.